Good afternoon. Today we have visiting us from the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Dr. Irma Curio. Um, first to say, Dr. Mercurio does not have any financial interest to disclose with respect to this activity. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device, and he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Dr. Mercurio received his bachelor's degree in biochemistry from Rutgers and then moved on to do his PhD at Columbia University focused on cell biology. Went on to do postdoc training at MIT and stayed in Boston thereafter, uh, joining the faculty of Harvard, first at the Deaconess, then become, to become Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital. Uh, he moved to join the University of Massachusetts Medical School as a professor of cancer biology and vice chair in 2005 and has been there ever since. And to his credit, I saw he also founded and directs the graduate program in cancer biology there. Um, he served in numerous uh, grant reviewer and editorial capacities, including serving as the st a study section chair for inter intercellular interactions at NCI, um, and also as associate editor of cancer research, and he continues to be on the editorial board for faculty of 1,000. Um, Dr. Mercurio also has a substantial footprint in the area of uh, cancer cell or cancer stem cell plasticity, differentiation, invasion, and angiogenesis, and uh, currently has substantial funding and also is the director of the training grant focused on cancer biology at UMass. And today he's going to talk to us about mechanisms that regulate uh, cancer stem cell fate and tumor plasticity. Doctor. Good afternoon. Everyone hear me in the back? Okay, so thank you, Todd, for the introduction and the invitation. And one of the goals of my visit is to sort of stimulate collaborations between uh, Dartmouth and UMass Medical School. So as I speak, and you know, if you have ideas you can think about for areas of collaboration, and there are other speakers coming in the series from UMass, to, because we do have, you know, our two institutions do have complementary interests that could be synergistic. So I think you know, our goal from the UMass perspective is to establish more ties with Dartmouth, both in terms of basic and translational cancer research. So with that, um, as Todd mentioned, the theme of our, our research is really based on this idea that solid tumors are heterogeneous structures. In any, any given tumor, all the tumor cells are not the same. Not to mention stromal cells, but just tumor cells themselves are very heterogeneous. And this heterogeneity is a, a challenge for understanding their biology, and perhaps even more so for therapy. So one perspective on this problem is to take the view that in any given solid tumor, there are cells with the ability to initiate new tumors. And for lack of a better term, we call these cancer stem cells. Now, I know this area is in a state of flux, and there are many different ideas about cancer stem cells. But from our perspective and the work we've done, we're pretty confident that in 
breast tumors and prostate tumors and colon tumors, there's a population of cells that's dedifferentiated that has tumor initiation capacity and expresses stem cell markers. In comparison, most of the cells in the tumor are more differentiated and lack these properties. So if nothing else, you have these two distinct populations working in a concert to generate the properties we associate with these tumors. So our work has taken the, the notion that if we go to the extreme example of tumor behavior, and that are these poorly differentiated or highly aggressive tumors, where we know the outcome is usually bad. Rapid cell death, high morbidity, I mean rapid patient death, high morbidity, et cetera. And examples of this are triple negative breast cancer or high glucin grade prostate cancer. There are many other examples. And these tumors, as I mentioned, are highly aggressive, poor prognosis. They have features of an EMT, that is, they are more dedifferentiated than other types of the same tumor. We also know they have a high frequency of what I'm calling cancer stem cells. They provide a very nice model system for studying the properties of these cancer stem cells and how they interact with non-cancer stem cells. So in this talk, I want to focus on three different topics. And the first one has to do with the role of VEGF signaling in tumor cells in breast cancer. The second part is our really bread and butter, that is cell adhesion receptors, the integrin, and their function in signaling in breast cancer. And the last part of the talk is a new project that was just published on a novel mode of cell death called phoroptosis, and it's linked to integrin signaling. So to begin, um, going back to this theme of tumor cancer stem cells due differentiation, now we're going to add in this concept of VEGF. So from the work of Weinberg, the initial work of Weinberg, we know that the process of dedifferentiation can increase the frequency of cancer stem cells. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with these papers. The other thing that we know, as I mentioned, is that at least for breast cancer, um, tumor grade, that is poorly differentiated carcinomas, have a higher frequency of cancer stem cells than more differentiated tumors. And why VEGF? So as many of you know, VEGF is the major angiogenic factor. Tumor cells and stromal cells secrete VEGF. It binds endothelial cells and drives angiogenesis. About 15 years ago now or more, we began thinking about the idea that tumor cells themselves express VEGF, and they may use it in an autocrine fashion to sustain their function. So this is an example of work we published some time ago. We're looking now at prostate cancer, and here is a, a differentiated prostate cancer, grade 3, glycine grade 3 tumor, and here is a high-grade tumor, both stained for VEGF. You can see that VEGF expression is dramatically induced in the high-grade tumor. And why is that important? As I mentioned, there's more to VEGF than angiogenesis. And we proposed some time ago that tumor cells, as I said, express VEGF 
and they use this VEGF in autocrine signaling pathways to sustain their function. And that's proven to be true, not just by our lab, but by many other labs in the ensuing years. And this implies, then, that tumor cells express receptors for VEGF that mediate this project, this problem. So what are these receptors? So there are two major classes of VEGF receptors. There are the classical tyrosine kinase receptors, VEGF R1, R2, and R3. In addition, there's another class called the neuropillins. And as the name implied, they were first identified in neurons, where they're involved in growth cone guidance and things like that. But Mike Klegsburn showed some time ago that VEGF also binds to neuropillins. And we know now that neuropillins are expressed during embryonic development. They're not expressed in most epithelial cells in the adult, but they're re-expressed in cancer. And it turns out that they tend to be more expressed more in more aggressive tumors. So we focused our work on these molecules and their role in both aggressive breast and prostate cancer. I'm going to show you data from breast cancer here. We also have much data on prostate cancer I can show afterwards or in questions. So how do neuropillins work? So these are co-receptors. They lack intrinsic signaling capacity. So they either modify other VEGF tyrosine kinase receptors or other RTKs. As I will show you, it can also interact with integrins to affect integrin function. And there's some evidence they can function alone by recruiting adapter proteins to mediate signaling. So the work, some of this work began by our finding that if you take a, some breast cancer cell lines, the triple negative cell lines, and sort out a stem cell population, and in crude terms, this is a CD44 positive, CD24 negative population, and look at neuropillin 2 expression, you can see it's much higher in the stem cell population than the non-stem cell population. Now, we took this a step further. We took human breast tumors at surgery. We made tumor cell suspensions and fact-sorted for neuropillin 2 expression. So we got two distinct populations, a neuropillin 2 high and a neuropillin 2 low population. And if you take these cells and put them in culture, they form mammospheres. You can inhibit mammosphere formation using a neuropillin 2 function blocking antibody. And we then went back to human breast tumors and we microdissected 20 triple negative or 21 triple negative tumors and 22 non triple negative tumors and quantified neuropillin 2 expression by PCR. You can see it's much higher in the triple negative tumors than the non triple negative tumors. So, again, these data are linking. Neuropillin 2 to a stem cell aggressive phenotype. Now, obviously, VEGF is a prime target for therapy. And one of the major drugs used to target VEGF is bevacizumab or Avastin. It turns out that this drug blocks the binding of VEGF to VEGF tyrosine kinase receptors, but not to neuropillin 2. So if you treat a patient with bevacizumab, it will block VEGF, VEGF R receptor tyrosine kinase interactions, but it will not touch this interaction here. So if what I'm saying is correct, 
if that neuropilin is too is expressed on these more aggressive cells, they wouldn't be targeted by this therapy. And in fact, as most of you know, VEGF-targeted therapy has not been very effective for many solid tumors, including breast cancer. So the question we asked is, if we target neuropilin 2 directly, will that have an effect on tumor behavior? And what we found is, in a number of different scenarios, um, and the first one is just a, a correlation study, if you fact sort um, a breast cancer cell line, this triple negative cell line, as I mentioned, for high neuropilin 2 and low neuropilin 2 expressing cells, the high cells are much more tumor initiating than the low cells. We've also used a transgenic model of triple negative breast cancer developed by Carl Simon at UMass. This is a very aggressive model, which is a very nice for studying this subtype of breast cancer. And if we treat these tumors with a neuropilin 2 antibody developed by Genentech, what we find is that this antibody reduces tumor, free, tumor initiation quite dramatically. So indeed, by targeting this VEGF receptor, we believe on tumor cells, not endothelial cells, we're affecting tumor initiation and perhaps overall reducing tumor aggressiveness. Now, as I mentioned, we have much more data on neuropilin 2 and prostate cancer I'm not showing. Perhaps the most definitive data is we've crossed the neuropilin 2 knockout mice with the P10 model of prostate cancer. In doing so, we reduce tumor initiation quite dramatically and reduce the frequency of prostate cancer stem cells. So I think the evidence that neuropilin 2 through a VEGF signaling pathway is important for um, tumor initiation and linked to these more aggressive tumors is quite strong. So now I want to move on to integrins, which has really been our bread and butter for, for many years. And these are receptors, and their name derives from the fact that they integrate the matrix with the cytoskeleton. And there are many different integrins. These are alpha-beta heterodimers, and the alpha-beta pairing determines their ligand specificity. So these are receptors for things like collagen, fibronectin, laminins. The ones we focused on are the alpha-6 integrins, alpha-6-beta-1 and alpha-6-beta-4, which are laminin receptors. So why the alpha-6 integrins? Or first of all, why integrins? So going back to my initial, original model, if you do have tumor heterogeneity, you do have all these interactions occurring both with the matrix surrounding the tumors and between these tumor cell populations. And if you think of cancer stem cells, they're surrounded by a niche of matrix proteins that sustain their function. And one of the major proteins in this niche are the laminins. So as I will show you later on in the talk, laminins around the tumor stem cell, cancer stem cells, actually sustain self-renewal in cancer stem cell properties. So getting back to the alpha-6 integrins, there are two different alpha-6 integrins, alpha-6-beta-1 and alpha-6-beta-4, the same alpha subunit, different beta subunits. So alpha-6-beta-1, most of you may have heard about because it's also called CD49F, and it's a well-known marker of both normal 
and tumor stem cells. It's been implicated in stem cell function, but the mechanisms have been unclear. Alpha-6, beta-4 has also been implicated in tumor formation, invasion, metastasis, but its role in cancer stem cells is a bit more ambiguous. So I'm going to first focus on alpha-6, beta-1, and then get back to alpha-6, beta-4. And I want to do it in the context of my first part of the talk, that is the neuropillins. So what we found is, I mentioned that neuropillins are co-receptors. They work by interacting with other receptors. What we found is that neuropillin 2 and alpha-6, beta-1 form a complex on breast cancer cells. You can co-immunoprecipitate as shown in this diagram here. So we have neuropillin 2 complex with alpha-6, beta-1. One of the major pathways by which integrin signal, signal is through focal adhesion kinase. So this interaction enables alpha-6, beta-1 to activate focal adhesion kinase. So integrins on the cell surface can either be active or inactive for signaling. So what's happening here is that when Neuropillin 2 complexes with alpha-6, beta-1, and VEGF engages neuropillin 2. It enables this integrin to activate alpha-6, beta-1 mediated FAC activation and drive FAC signaling. And this is shown perhaps more dramatically here. What we've done here, again, is taking human breast tumor biopsies, FAC sorted for neuropillin 2 high and a low expression, and put these cells on a laminin matrix, which is a ligand for alpha-6. And what you see, hopefully you can see, is that the high population forms very nice focal adhesions on laminin, whereas the low cells attach if they don't form focal adhesions. So both cells are attaching, but only these cells are forming focal adhesions and activating focal adhesion kinase. Again, showing that, number one, within the same tumor, we have high and low populations of neuropillin, two expressing cells, that differ quite dramatically in their signaling properties. We went on to show that this pathway actually involves a very complicated scheme which culminates in the activation of this factor, BMI1, which is a polycomb, uh, member of the polycomb group complex that's a repressor of transcription. But importantly, it's been shown to be important for self-renewal of cancer stem cells. So essentially what we're showing here is that this VEGF neuropillin 2-mediated activation of alpha-6 beta-1 through this FAC-RAS pathway, through GLEE-1, turns on BMI-1, activating this pathway. Now, the situation is a bit more complicated. The alpha-6 cytoplasmic domain has two splice variants, alpha-6A and alpha-6B. So we first characterized these, I hate to say it, about, about 25 years ago. And the field became somewhat dormant. So people knew about these splice variants, but no one knew much about how they differed in function. So we became interested in this problem again because we started a project where some of you may know that Kevin Struhl at Harvard um, took MCF10A MCF cells and expressed in those cells an inducible SAR kinase. And what he found was that when he induced SARC activation, it transformed these cells and increased the frequency of cancer stem cells. So we got the system from Kevin and began working with these cells. 
And what we found was that, so he's calling the city 44 high, 24 low population, a cancer stem cell fraction. So we isolated this fraction. And what we found by sorting is it's actually composed of two very different fractions, a very epithelial fraction and a very mesenchymal fraction within the cancer stem cell population, which was surprising. And they both expressed alpha 6 beta 1. So going back to our old work on the splicing, we began to think maybe they expressed different splice variants of alpha 6. And indeed, it turns out that the epithelial population expresses alpha 6A, whereas the mesenchymal population expresses alpha 6B, even within the subpopulation of putative cancer stem cells. And it turns out that the mesenchymal population is much more tumorigenic than the epithelial population, suggesting that splicing of this integrin cytoplasmic domain can affect tumor initiation and perhaps cancer stem cell properties. So how is that possible? So we began to pursue this further, and we did a number of experiments. We engineered cells to express either alpha-6A or alpha-6B, and as you can see here, the alpha-6B cells have a much higher frequency of cancer stem cells than the alpha-6B cells, as assessed by this limiting dilution analysis. We also knocked out alpha-6B expression in a, um, a very aggressive cell line, and we found that if you knock out alpha-6B expression, you basically ablate their ability to form tumors. So again, linking this splice variant to tumor-initiating potential. <coughs> so it turns out that this splice is, is controlled by a specific splicing factor, ESRP1, epithelial splicing factor 1. So when ESRP1 is present, you promote a more epithelial phenotype, and you maintain alpha-6A expression. If you inhibit ESRP1, you generate alpha-6B, and you get a more dedifferentiated stem-like phenotype. <coughs> and for example, if you take a more differentiated cell and inhibit ESRP1 expression, you increase alpha-6B and diminish alpha-6A. And if you um, express ESRP1 in a dedifferentiated cell, you basically decrease self-renewal potential. So this splicing factor is critical for determining tumor initiation potential, probably tumor aggressiveness. And how is this controlled? How is this, since the splicing factor is critical for this process, how is it regulated? And what we showed was, going back to the first part of the talk, that's actually VEGF neuropilin 2 signaling that controls the SRP1 expression. So when you induce VEGF neuropilin 2 signaling, what you're doing is, as I mentioned, inducing BMI1, which we showed can repress ESRP1. And by doing so, you're promoting alpha-6b beta-1 expression. And this is shown here. For example, if you take a very aggressive cell line, I think my pointer is gone. Here it goes. Um, if you inhibit VEGF, you um, increase ESRP1, you increase alpha-6A, and decrease alpha-6B. And with other, many other data, we can chip uh, BMI1 on the ESRP1 promoter, as shown over here, et cetera. 
And there's a strong inverse correlation between BMI1 and, ES, and ESRP1 in a large cohort of human breast tumors. So again, coming back to the first part of the talk, this autocrine VEGF signaling pathway is really critical for sustaining a more dedifferentiated stem-like phenotype. One of the reasons is because it sustains alpha-6b beta-1 expression. So what I've shown you so far is this dichotomy where you have VEGF controlling the balance between these two splicing events. And when VEGF is present, you have the right-hand scenario where you have tumor initiation self-renewal at more EMT phenotype. In contrast, when VEGF is low, ESRP1 is high, you have a more dedifferentiated, more differentiated phenotype, uh, perhaps linked to more proliferation and survival mechanisms. Now, the question is, what is the ligand for alpha-6b, because that becomes very important now, that sustains self-renewal? And as I mentioned, the ligands for these integrants are the laminins. And there are many different laminins. It's a large family of matrix proteins. So we did some RNA-seq experiments, and what we found was that in the stem cell population, we saw a decrease in one lamin, 332, an increase in 511. Now, why is that important? So laminin 332 is the major basement membrane laminin. So epithelial cells anchor to a basement membrane using laminin 332. Laminin 511 is used to culture embryonic stem cells to maintain their self-renewal. So it turns out that these tumor, these Cancer stem cells are secreting laminin 511, as I will show you. And using it to maintain their self-renewal. So if we take um, either um, a cell line and we inhibit laminin, alpha, laminin 511 expression, we decrease self-renewal. But more importantly, if we take our transgenic model if we take out those tumor cells, which are making laminin 511, knockout expression, we decrease tumor initiation quite dramatically. So again, this autocrine secretion of this laminin is critical for sustaining self-renewal. And what's, I think, one of my favorite experiments is we took three different human breast tumors, and we fact-sorted them for laminin 511. What we found is about 2 or 3% of the cells in the tumor had high laminin expression of 5.1. But those tumor cells had the highest stem cell properties compared to the bulk population. So in a way, this is a potential marker for breast cancer stem cells. And this is shown even more dramatically here by the immunostaining. If you stain a triple negative breast cancer, for example, only a few cells are surrounded by a laminin matrix, either by IF, IHC, or IF here. So again, this very small cell population appears to be expressing laminin 511. That's important, it appears to be, for maintaining their stem cell properties. In other terms, they're making a niche of laminin 511 that's sustaining their stem cell phenotype, maybe aggressive behavior. So the next question is, how does this, so I showed you that 
laminin 501's engaging alpha 6B beta 1, how does that sustain stemness? So again, going back to the RNA-seq experiments, what we found is that in the cancer stem cell fractions, or the alpha-6b expressing fractions, we had a high frequency of YAPTAS target genes. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with HIPPO pathway because it's become critically important for a number of different cancers. And for breast cancer in particular, it's known that the HIPPO effector TAS, a transcriptional coactivator, is important for, number one, breast cancer stem cell function, and it's also linked to more aggressive breast cancer subtypes like triple negative. And to make a long story short, these are all published data, what we found was that the laminin-alpha-6b interaction is actually promoting TAS activation. And one criteria for that is nuclear localization. And you can see that cells that express alpha-6b have much more nuclear TAS than cells expressing alpha-6a, as well as TAS target gene expression. If you put cells on a laminin 511 matrix, most of the TAS is nuclear, as opposed to laminin 111, where it's cytoplasmic. So again, now we have a, a pathway where the matrix through integrins is controlling TAS activation, which is critical, again, for stem cell function. So again, going back to this dichotomy, these two splice variants have very different functions. As I mentioned, alpha-6b is activating TAS, maintaining cancer stem cells. Actually, alpha-6a is blocking TAS activation. So by inhibiting TAS, you're number one, decreasing stem cell properties, number two, promoting a more differentiated phenotype. And in work that's in press, that I'm not talking about today, what we've shown is, so the question is, how does alpha-6a actually inhibit TAS? What we've shown is that alpha-6a actually engages this protein called scribble, a polarity protein, and it maintains a, scra a scribble TAS complex on the cell surface and prevents TAS nuclear localization. Whereas alpha-6b cannot sequester scribble, therefore, TAS is free to go to the nucleus through this signaling pathway I described. Okay, so now I want to focus on the other integrin, which is uh, my favorite child, who's alpha-6, beta-4. So this is the major integrin that anchors epithelial cells to the basement membrane. And the phenotype of the beta-4 knockout mice is they're viable, but they die after birth because their skin peels off from mechanical stress. Right, the epidermis cannot stay intact. And unlike most integrins, which have a cytoplasmic domain of about 30 or 40 amino acids, alpha-6, the beta-4 subunit is over 1,000 amino acids. It's a very complex structure. So we began studying this integrin many years ago in the context of cancer. And the reason we got involved is because of this video here, in a way. I can. What we found is, now this is a colon carcinoma solid going back many years. 
So this was taken from a patient with a very aggressive colon cancer. As you can see, these cells are a bit crazy. The reason I'm showing this video is because this migration is being driven by alpha-6, beta-4. So the question is, how can an integrin that's basically an anchor to the basement membrane drive a dynamic process like migration and invasion? So what we showed was that mechanisms that promote tumor invasion and migration, what they do is they mobilize this integrin from hemidesmosomes by a phosphorylation mechanism and allow it to engage F-actin in lamellipodia and phyllopodia, where it can now drive migration. So you have this switch from this very stable adhesive structure to a more dynamic adhesion where the same integrin, same subunit, is now working with F-actin as opposed to intermediate filaments to drive migration. So that was one paradox that we solved many years ago. We have a new paradox, and that is that this integrin, there are quite a bit of data linking it to uh, tumor formation and metastasis. But from our data, it doesn't appear to be expressed in cancer stem cells. So for example, this is the transgenic model of triple negative breast cancer. And you can see if we fractionate a cancer stem cell population and a non-cancer stem cell population, Beta-4 is markedly reduced in the cancer stem cell population compared to the non-cancer stem cell population. Similarly, if we take PDX models of triple negative breast cancer, we see the same phenomenon. Beta-4 is dramatically reduced in the, in the um, cancer stem cell population. So we went further, and we took these PDX tumors. What we found were if we fact-sorted for beta-4, there were two distinct peaks, a beta-4 high population and a beta-4 low population. So we compared these peaks by RNA-seq. What we found was, not surprisingly, the beta-4 high population was linked to more epithelial differentiation genes like E-cadherin and P-cadherin and cytokeratin-5, whereas the low population was associated more with mesenchymal or stem-like genes. So again, same tumor, heterogeneity, Beta-4 high cells, beta-4 low cells, very different properties. And when we stain tumors, for example, if you stain a triple negative tumor for alpha-6b, which detects, we think, cancer stem cells, and beta-4, they're distinct populations in close proximity. So what is, what's going on here with these two populations? What is beta-4 doing? to augment tumor cell function, or tumor function. And again, just to, to reiterate what I said, if you take the beta-4 high population of a triple negative tumor, it's not very um, tumor-initiating compared to the beta-4 low population, and it lacks self-renewal properties. So our current thinking is that these two populations function in a non-cell autonomous mechanism. What we're arguing is that the beta-4 high population is exerting an effect on cancer stem cells through paracrine signaling that somehow sustains their stem cell properties. 
And one idea we have from work we've done in memory gland development is that the beta-4 hot population secreting a ligand like parathyroid hormone-related protein, which we've shown to be important for memory gland development through beta-4 signaling, and that this interaction, so these cells may be secreting something like PTHRP that's interacting with cancer stem cells to maintain their stem cell properties and do differentiation. This is very much a working model that we're trying to pursue. So one of the things we've known for a long time is that one of the functions of this integrin is to maintain the survival of tumor cells, both in vitro and in vivo. And now the question is, obviously, this is very important for, um, for therapy, but also for understanding this, this heterogeneity aspect I mentioned. And so we published this work a long time ago, and we became engaged in this recently because we began thinking about another type of cell death, which I mentioned called corruptosis. So just to remind you, um, going back to old literature now, if you take cells growing on matrix and remove them, they tend to undergo cell death unless they enable mechanisms to sustain their survival. And this is called anoecus. So typically, tumor cells are more resistant to anoecus than normal cells, but that can vary. And most of the work has been focused on apoptosis in this capacity. This has become very important because there's been a large amount of data now coming out on the importance of circulating tumor cells. And if you think about circulating tumor cells, they're devoid of really a solid matrix. So basically, they're undergoing this potential for anoecus. And we became interested in this because of work by Brent Stockwell at Columbia, who defined this novel mode of cell death called foroptosis. And basically, this is death by lipid peroxidation. So essentially, um, cells are able to resist changes in reactive oxygen species in lipid peroxidation by maintaining this enzyme, glutathione peroxidase 4, which is the only glutathione peroxidase that can block lipid peroxidation. So if conditions occur that either block this system X, which transports uh, cysteine into cysteine, which manufactures glutathione, which is a cofactor with GPX4. So if you inhibit this with drugs like Arastin, you get foroptosis. If you block GPX4, you get foroptosis, all because you're increasing lipid peroxidation, which is causing cell death. So we began wondering, number one, is alpha-6-beta-4, because it can promote tumor cell survival, have a role in foroptosis, and if so, what is the mechanism? So what we found was, so I mentioned, so is this the question? So we did some very simple experiments. This was just published uh, this month. If we knock out beta-4 expression in either MCF10A cells or a 
tumor cell line, SOM159, using CRISPR, um, and put these cells on matrix and detach them. When we detach them, we get massive cell death. But if we add an inhibitor of phoroptosis called ferrostatin, we can block that cell death, suggesting that, number one, anawikis can involve phoroptosis, and number two, that this integrin can play a role in promoting survival of these cells. And again, going back to our PDX model, I showed you before that we can sort PDX tumors for high and low beta-4 expression. We do the same experiment with these populations, and what you see here is that the beta-4 high population, if we detach them from matrix, there's no cell death. But the beta-4 low cells undergo cell death that can be rescued by ferrostatin. So it's both in vitro and in vivo. So, what about apoptosis? I mean, everyone thinks anawikis involves apoptosis. Where does ferroptosis come in? What we found is that when we detach these cells, they cluster spontaneously. You can see this here. And if you prevent that clustering with either methylcellulose or EDTA, you get single cells. These single cells don't undergo ferroptosis, they undergo apoptosis. So ferroptosis requires cell clustering upon detachment. And no one has seen or observed cells clustering after ECM detachment before. And we were surprised when we looked at this more carefully because now these are detached MCF10A cells. What you can see is they're forming these very nice cell-cell junctions, which are F-actin-rich. And they also contain beta-4. <clears throat> this is important because no one has seen beta-4 in a cell-cell junction before in adherent cells. So when you're detaching these cells, beta-4, as I showed you before, is mobilizing these F-actin structures where now it's involved in a mechanism that's inhibiting ferroptosis. But beta-4 is not involved in clustering per se. If we use cells that lack beta-4, they still cluster, but they don't form these junctions. And they can't resist ferroptosis. So it appears that these junctional complexes that are being formed play a major role in ferroptosis resistance. <coughs> So I mentioned that fructosis is linked to lipid peroxidation. Therefore, beta-4 should play a role in blocking uh, this, this phenomenon. As you can see here, if you measure reactive oxygen in control cells expressing alpha-6 beta-4, there's very little increase in ROS upon detachment, whereas if you knock out beta-4 expression, you get a marked increase in ROS. If you measure lipid peroxidation itself using the MDA assay, you can see that adherent cells, plus and minus beta-4, there's no effect on lipid peroxidation. But when you knock out, when you detach these cells, there's a slight increase, which is markedly greater when you knock out beta-4. So it appears that detachments increasing lipid peroxidation that's being buffered by alpha-6 beta-4. So it was recently shown um, over the spring or summer in a series of papers in Nature uh, Chemical Biology that you need this enzyme, ACSL4, to execute for optosis. 
And what this enzyme does, it manufactures a long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids are the substrates of lipid peroxidation that cause proptosis. Why am I showing you this? So the question became, how does this integrin inhibit ferroptosis? And one mechanism is that it inhibits expression of ACSL4. So if you detach cells with alpha-6-beta-4 being expressed, there's not much change in ACSL4. But if you knock out beta-4 expression, this enzyme is induced, which then enables these cells to undergo ferroptosis. And if you look at, again, C bioportal, there's a nice inverse correlation between alpha 6 beta 4 and ACSL4 in human breast tumors. So, alpha 6 beta 4 signals, and that signaling must be important in the invasion of fructosis. What is the pathway involved? So, what we've shown is that SARC, which we knew from our previous work, is activated by alpha-6-beta-4 signaling, has a major role in controlling proptosis. So up until now, no one really knew what signaling pathways had an effect on controlling proptosis. So if you inhibit SARC, that by itself is sufficient to induce proptosis in detached cells. So you can see, if you inhibit SARC, you get a massive decrease in cell viability that's rescued by proptosis inhibitors. And we've shown then that SARC activation is required to um, suppress ACSL4 expression. So this is all well and good. And then we went on to show that SARC, through activation of STAT3, is what's involved in repressing transcription of this enzyme. And this is shown by ENCODE data, where STAT3 binds the promoter of ACSL4 and if we use an inhibitor of STAT3, uh, we can prevent uh, this repression of ACSL4. But what really caught our attention was a paper that was published recently in Nature by Stuart Schreiber. And what they showed was that very aggressive tumors have to, are very susceptible to proptosis. And they have to enable mechanisms that sustain GPX4 expression to survive. So what's becoming important, I think, emerging is that these very aggressive cells, you can treat them with a number of different drugs. But in the end, what matters is their ability to sustain GPX4 expression. So the question we asked is, is there a link between alpha-6-beta-4 and GPX4? And indeed, what we found is that when you detach cells that express alpha-6-beta-4, there's an increase in GPX4 mRNA expression and enzyme activity. But this is not sustained if you knock out alpha-6-beta-4. So what we're showing here is that, indeed, detachment, the stress condition, is inducing GPX4 expression as a function of alpha-6-beta-4 signaling. And that's enabling these cells to buffer lipid peroxidation. <coughs> so, um, I think this shows more of the same. That is, if you now 
Um, so the question then became, how does um, this happens very quickly? So within two hours, we're seeing this induction of GPX4 expression, or in beta-4 knockdown cells, we're seeing a loss of GPX4 mRNA expression. <coughs> so in the literature, there's not much known about how this enzyme is regulated. And we began looking at various transcription factors that might be important, nothing really panned out. And it looks like that what's happening is alpha-6 beta-4 is actually controlling mRNA stability of GPX4. So when you detach cells, this mRNA can be degraded very rapidly. What alpha-6 beta-4 is doing through SARC activation is sustaining its stability. And now we're trying to pursue the mechanism involved. So, again, getting back to my original theme on alpha-6 beta-4 metastasis, um, a few examples. So Juan Massagay developed these cells, these 231 variants called LM2 cells that are highly prone to metastasis to the lungs. So we compared expression of beta-4 and GPX-4 in the parental cells versus the metastatic cells. You can see they're both are very highly elevated in the metastatic cells. And as I mentioned before, um, this issue of circulating tumor cells has become very much front and center. And how do these cells survive? And Dan Haber has shown that clusters, clusters of tumor cells are much more efficient at establishing metastasis than single cells. So this idea of clustering could be very important for survival of these circulating tumor cells or other metastatic cells. And it may be that the ability of these cells to sustain GPX4 expression is what's keeping them alive in the circulation. So to summarize this part of the talk, um, we can argue that tumor cells encounter stress conditions, such as ECM detachment, or various drugs like Arastin, which I haven't, data I haven't shown you, which can induce phoroptosis. And that these drugs can trigger lipid peroxidation and phoroptosis. Now, one mechanism by which cells evade this is to activate alpha-6 beta-4 expression, which sustains GPX-4 and presses ACSL-4. <clears throat> now, I think what's interesting here are two things. Why do you need these complexes, these junctional complexes of F-actin and clustering to um, inhibit phoroptosis? Is it because these clusters of, of tumor cells, this clustering phenomenon, somehow affects membrane lipids to cause that effect. We don't know. We're working on that. The other question is, how does alpha-6 beta-4 sigma actually control GPX-4 mRNA stability? And I think these are very important questions for both the biology of cancer circulating tumor cells and for therapy going forward. So with that, I will thank the people involved in the work. Um, so much of the work that I told you in the first two parts of the talk on um, VEGF and integrins was driven by Hira Goal in collaboration with other people in the lab. And the work on phoroptosis was really driven by a postdoc, Caitlin Brown, who's actually a Hanover native, who grew up here. Her father's a professor at Dartmouth, and now she's a postdoc with us. So with that, I'll stop and take questions.
Uh, your, in the beginning of your talk, you were showing when you would knock down, knocking down uh, alpha six subunit. Did you see an increase in binding of any of the alpha, or alpha subunits to beta one integrin? Um, we did check other integrins. There wasn't a, a market change. Alpha three, uh, other integrin lamina receptors. We thought about that question, but there wasn't. There was slight differences, but not a major one. Good question, though. Interesting talk. Yeah, given the fact that uh, breast cancers break down into uh, estrogen, hormone dependent, hormone independent, how uh, do, do, do hormones in, uh, play a role as they, in part one of your presentation on stem cells or in the shift that you observe here that uh, promotes metastasis? Um, good questions. Um, in the first part of the talk, I think from what we've seen, most of the D-differentiated cells are ER-alpha negative. Yeah. But they may express ER-beta. So we've done a lot of work on ER-beta in prostate cancer, which I didn't show. But in terms of ER-alpha, I'm pretty sure they're alpha negative. Yeah. And the second part, we haven't looked at hormones, and that, that's interesting. We haven't looked at that. Yeah. In, in, in the first part, these stem cells, do they, are they the progenitors for the more differentiated ones in, in, in tumors? Great question. So I should have mentioned this. These cells are very plastic, and the dedifferentiated state is very unstable. So in culture, they tend to revert to the more differentiated state over time. So yes, that's, that's definitely you. Yeah. Um, it's uh, a question from the So, best you ask the question of dormancy, right? What, a question of dormancy, what controls tumor dormancy? Well, maybe Todd can address that, but I will give it a shot. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think it does directly, but obviously um, there are factors that suppress tumor regrowth, right? And how is that linked to either VEGF signaling or integrin expression? We really don't know. I mean, it's something we thought about, but we don't have any clear indication. That was a beautiful talk. Um, this is more of a philosophical question. So in the EMT field, we usually associate the loss of epithelial traits, like loss of junctions, loss of zones, uh, and polarity with acquisition of stem traits. But from your data, over the years, you've shown that binding to the basement membrane, uh, in fact, promotes tumor genesis and tumor progression. And even from your recent data, that clustering seems to somehow prevent or uh, help evasion of keratosis. Right. So do we have to be wired? No, I think, no, I think, I don't think so, because um, we've never shown that basement membrane anchoring promotes a dedifferentiated phenotype. Um, what we've shown is, at least in the, say, the latter part of the talk, the cell clustering we're seeing, we're not sure if that's linked to EMT at all. All we know is that when you detach these cells, they cluster spontaneously. 
Um, and that involves both data for maybe ECAD Heron. Um, but I still think the EMT dogma holds that, you know, loss of polarities is the Weinberg model of increased stem cell phenotype. Um, but, yeah, I don't, um, as I talked about before in your office, the, the puzzle is that we think of EMT as repressing beta-4, but some tumors like very aggressive metaplastic breast cancers are EMT-like, they have high beta-4 expression. So why is that? Maybe it could be like a partial state where cells are not completely resentful, but still retain some of those epithelial traits which make them work. I would agree with that, but from what I, from, I don't know if a pathologist can help me here, but metaplastic breast cancers are very de-differentiated, right? Well, they are maybe differentiated, but uh, in a different right, right, yeah, right, way. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a very good question. Alan, okay. So I'm, I'm trying to understand how, how does lipid peroxidation kill? Let me qualify it. Stockwell defines ferroptosis as the pathways which give rise to lipid peroxidation, hence ferrostatin blocks those lipid peroxidation. It doesn't define how a cell kills, how a cell dies. So what happens once you've got lipid peroxidation? How does the cell die? I think I have a slider I didn't show. I think the end products of peroxidation can actually disrupt cell membranes, and you get a form of necrosis. So it's regulated necrosis. Does um, peroxidation of the mitochondrial uh, cardiolipin, for example, affect uh, the, thresh the mitochondrial threshold for initiation of apoptosis? You know, that's, you raise a good question. We have not looked at the mitochondria per se in this context. Um, we're assuming it's peroxidation of the, of the plasma membrane, but it's possible it's other intracellular organelles as well. We haven't addressed that question. I wonder if you tried to manipulate the overall um, saturation index of the cellular membranes and see if that uh, has a marked effect on the susceptibility. That's a good idea, yeah. Very good idea.